Section 13 of Now It Can Be Told by Philip Gibbs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 5. The Heart of a City. Amiens in Time of War. Chapters 1 to 9. Chapter 1. During the battles of the Somme in 1916, and afterward in periods of progress and retreat over the abominable fields, the city of Amiens was the capital of the British Army. When the battles began in July of that year, it was only a short distance away from the fighting lines, near enough to hear the incessant roar of gunfire on the French front and ours, and near enough to get by motor-car or lorry in less than thirty minutes to places where men were being killed or maimed or blinded in the routine of the day's work. One went out past Amiens Station and across a little stone bridge, which afterward, in the enemy's advance of 1918, became the mark for German high velocities, along the road to Kerieu, where Rawlinson had his headquarters of the Fourth Army in an old chateau, with pleasant meadows round it and a stream meandering through fields of buttercups in summertime. Beyond the dusty village of Kerieu, with its white cottages, from which the plaster fell off in blotches as the war went on, we went along the straight high road to Albert, through the long and straggling village of La Soussois, where Scottish soldiers in reserve lounged about among frowsy peasant women and played solemn games with the Berns, and so past camps and hutments on each side of the road to the ugly red-brick town where the golden virgin hung head downward from the broken tower of the church with her babe outstretched above the fields of death as though as a peace offering to this world at war one could be killed any day in albert i saw men blown to bits there the clay after the battles of the somme began it was in the road that turned to the right past the square to go to meulte and on to fricourt there was a tide of gun transport swirling down the road, bringing up new ammunition for the guns that were firing without a pause over Fricourt and Mametz. The high scream of a shell came through a blue sky and ended on its downward note with a sharp crash. For a few minutes the transport column was held up while a mass of raw flesh, which a second before had been two living men and their horses, was cleared out of the way. Then the gun-wagons went at a harder pace down the road, raising a cloud of white dust out of which I heard the curses of the drivers, swearing in a foul way to disguise their fear. I went through Albert many scores of times to the battlefields beyond, and watched its process of disintegration through those years, till it was nothing but a wild scrap-heap of red brick and twisted iron and in the last phase even the golden virgin and her babe which had seemed to escape all shell-fire by miraculous powers lay buried beneath a mass of masonry beyond were the battlefields of the somme where every yard of ground is part of the great graveyard of our youth so amiens as i have said was not far away from the red heart of war and was clear enough to the lines to be crowded always with officers and men who came out between one battle and another and by lorry jumping could reach this city for a few hours of civilized life according to their views of civilization to these men boys mostly who had been living in lousy ditches under hell-fire amiens was paradise 
with little hells for those who liked them. There were hotels in which they could go to get a bath, if they waited long enough or had the luck to be early on the list. There were streets of shops with plate-glass windows, unbroken, shining, beautiful. There were well-dressed women walking about with kind eyes, and children as dainty, some of them, as in High Street Kensington or Prince's Street, Edinburgh. Young officers who had plenty of money to spend, because there was no chance of spending money between a row of blasted trees and a ditch in which bits of dead men were plastered into the parapet, invaded the shops and bought fancy soaps, razors, hair oil, stationery, pocket-books, knives, flash-lamps, top-boots, at a fabulous price, khaki shirts and collars, gramophone records, and the latest set of Kirchner prints. It was the delight of spending, rather than the joy of possessing, which made them go from one shop to another in search of things they could carry back to the line. That and the lure of girls behind the counters, laughing, bright-eyed girls who understood their execrable French, even English spoken with a Glasgow accent, and were pleased to flirt for five minutes with any group of young fighting men, who broke into roars of laughter at the gallantry of some Don Juan among them with a gift of audacity and paid outrageous prices for the privilege of stammering out some foolish sentiment in broken French, blushing to the roots of their hair, though captains and heroes, at their own temerity with a girl who, in another five minutes, would play the same part in the same scene with a different group of boys. I used to marvel at the patience of these girls, how bored they must have been with all this flirtation, which led to nothing except perhaps the purchase of a bit of soap at twice its proper price. They knew that these boys would leave to go back to the trenches in a few hours, and that some of them would certainly be dead in a few days. There could be no romantic episode, save of a transient kind, between them and these good-looking lads, in whose eyes there were desire and hunger, because to them the plainest girl was womanhood, the sweet, gentle, and feminine side of life, as opposed to the cruelty, brutality, and ugliness of war and death. The shop girls of Amiens had no illusions. They had lived too long in war not to know the realities. They knew the risks of transient love, and they were not taking them, unless conditions were very favorable. They attended strictly to business, and hoped to make a lot of money in the shop, and were, I think, mostly good girls, as virtuous as life in wartime may let girls be, wise beyond their years, and with pity behind their laughter for these soldiers who tried to touch their hands over the counters, knowing that many of them were doomed to die for France and England. They had their own lovers, boys in blue somewhere between Vaux-sur-Somme and Hartmann's Villerkopf, and apart from occasional intimacies with English officers quartered in Amiens for long spells, left the traffic of passion to other women who walked the streets. CHAPTER Two. The street of the Three Pebbles, la rue des Trois-Cailloux, which goes up from the station through the heart of Amiens, was the crowded highway. Here were the best shops, the hairdresser at the left-hand side, where all day long officers down from the line came in to have elaborate luxury in the way of close crops with friction d'eau de quinine, shampooing, singeing, oiling, not because of vanity, but because of the joyous sense of cleanliness and perfume after the filth and stench of life in the desolate fields. Then the booksellers, Madame Carpentier et Fille, 
on the right-hand side, which was not only the rendezvous of the miscellaneous crowd buying stationery in la vie parisienne, but of the intellectuals who spoke good French and bought good books and liked ten minutes' chat with the mother and the daughter. Madame was an Alsatian lady with vivid memories of 1870, when, as a child, she had first learned to hate Germans. She hated them now with a fresh, vital hatred, and would have seen her own son dead a hundred times, he was a soldier in Saloniki, rather than that France should make a compromise peace with the enemy. She had been in Amiens, as I was, on the dreadful night of August of 1914, when the French army passed through in retreat from Belpomme, and she and the people of her city knew for the first time that the Germans were close upon them. She stood in the crowd, as I did, in the darkness, watching that French column pass with their transport and their wounded lying on the baggage wagons. Men of many regiments mixed up, the light of the street lamps shining on the casks of cousers and their long horsehair tails, leading their stumbling horses and foot soldiers hunched under their packs, marching silently with dragging steps. Once in a while one of the soldiers left the ranks and came on to the sidewalk, whispering to a group of dark shadows. The crowds watched silently in a curious, dreadful silence, as though stunned. A woman near me spoke in a low voice and said, Nous sommes perdus. Those were the only words I heard or remembered. That night in the station of Amiens, the boys of a new class were being hurried away in the truck trains, and while their army was in retreat sang La Marseillaise as though victory were in their hearts. Next day, the German army under von Kluck entered Amiens, and ten days afterward passed through it on the way to Paris. Madame Carpentier told me of the first terror of the people when the field-gray men came down the street of the Three Pebbles and entered their shops. A boy selling oranges fainted when a German stretched out his hand to buy some. Women hid behind their counters when German boots stamped into their shops. But Madame Carpentier was not afraid. She knew the Germans and their language. She spoke frank words to German officers who saluted her respectfully enough. You will never get to Paris. France and England will be too strong for you. Germany will be destroyed before this war ends. They laughed at her and said, We shall be in Paris in a week from now. Have you a little diary, madame? Madame Carpentier was haughty with them. Some women in Amiens, poor drabs, did not show any haughtiness nor any pride with the enemy who crowded into the city on their way toward Paris. A girl told me that she was looking through the window of a house that faced the Place de Gare, and saw a number of German soldiers dancing around a piano organ which was playing to them. They were dancing with women of the town, who were laughing and screeching in the embrace of big blond Germans. The girl who was watching was only a schoolgirl then. She knew very little of the evil of life but enough to know that there was something in this scene degrading to womanhood and to France. She turned from the window and flung herself on her bed and wept bitterly. I used to call in at the bookshop for a chat now and then with Madame and Mademoiselle Carpentier, while a crowd of officers came in and out. Madame was always merry and bright in spite of her denunciations of sale boche, les brillants, les bandites, the mademoiselle put my knowledge of French to a severe but pleasant test. 
she spoke with alarming rapidity her words tumbling over one another in a cascade of volubility delightful to hear but difficult to follow she had a strong mind masterly in her methods of business so that she could serve six customers at once and make each one think her attention was entirely devoted to his needs and a very shrewd and critical idea of military strategy and organization she had but a poor opinion of british generals and generalship although a whole-hearted admiration for the gallantry of british officers and men and she had an intimate knowledge of our preparations plans failures and losses french liaison officers confided to her the secrets of the british army and english officers trusted her with many revelations of things in the wind but mademoiselle carpentier had discretion and loyalty and did not repeat these things to people who had no right to know she would have been far more efficient as a staff officer than many of the young gentlemen with red tabs on their tunics who came into the shop flipping beautiful top boots with riding crops sitting on the counter and turning over the pages of la vie for the latest convention in ladies legs mademoiselle was a serious musician so her mother told me but her musical studies were seriously interrupted by business and air raids which one day ceased in amiens altogether after a night of horror when hundreds of houses were smashed to dust and many people killed and the germans brought their guns close to the city close enough to scatter high velocities about its streets and the population came out of their cellars shaken by the terror of the night and fled i passed the bookshop where mademoiselle was locking up the door of this house which had escaped by greater luck than its neighbors she turned as i passed and raised her hand with a grave gesture of resignation and courage il n'est pas son pas she said it was the spirit of the courage of french womanhood which spoke in those words chapter three that was in the last phase of the war but the street of the three pebbles had been tramped up and down for two years before then by the british armies on the somme with the french on their right i was never tired of watching those crowds and getting into the midst of them and studying their types all the types of young english manhood came down this street and some of their faces showed the strain and agony of war especially toward the end of the somme battles after four months or more of slaughter i saw boys with a kind of hunted look in their eyes and death was the hunter they stared into the shop windows in a dazed way or strode along with packs on their backs looking neither to the right nor to the left and white haggard faces as expressionless as masks tomorrow or the next day perhaps the hunter would track them down other english officers showed no sign at all of apprehension or lack of nerve control although the psychologist would have detected disorder of soul in the rather deliberate note of hilarity with which they greeted their friends in gusts of laughter for no apparent cause at charlie's bar where they would drink three cocktails apiece on an empty stomach and in their tendency to tell tales of horror as things that were very funny they dined and wined in amiens at the rhin the godebert or the cathedrale with a kind of spiritual exultation in good food and drink as though subconsciously they believed that this might be their last dinner in life with good pals about them they wanted to make the best of it and damn the price in that spirit many of them went after other pleasures down the byways of the city and damned the price again which was a hellish one who blames them 
It was war that was to blame, and those who made war possible. Down the Rue de Trois-Cailloux, up and down, up and down, went English and Scottish and Irish and Welsh and Canadian and Australian and New Zealand fighting men. In the winter they wore their trench coats, all splashed and caked up to the shoulders, with the white, chalky mud of the Somme battlefields, and their top boots and putees were plastered with this mud, and their faces were smeared with it after a lorry drive or a tramp down from the line. The rain beat with a metallic tattoo on their steel hats. Their packs were all sodden. French Pouilloux detrained at Amiens station for a night on their way to some other part of the front, jostled among British soldiers, and their packs were a wonder to see. They were like traveling tinkers, with pots and pans and boots slung about their faded blue coats, and packs bulging with all the primitive needs of life in the desert of the battlefields beyond civilization. They were unshaven, and wore their steel casque low over their foreheads, without gaiety, without the means of buying a little false hilarity, but grim and sullen-looking and resentful of English soldiers, walking or talking with French coquettes. Chapter 4 I saw a scene with the French Boyou one day, in the Street of the Three Pebbles, during those battles of the Somme, when the French troops were fighting on our right, from Mericourt southward toward Roy. It was like a scene from Gaspard. The Pouilloux was a middle-aged man, and very drunk on some foul spirit which he had bought in a low café down by the river. In the high street he was noisy and cursed God for having allowed the war to happen, and the French government for having sentenced him and all poor Sacre Pouilloux to rot to death in the trenches, away from their wives and children, without a thought for them, and nothing but treachery in Paris. Nous sommes trahis said the man, raising his arms. For the hundredth time Francis betrayed. A crowd gathered round him, listening to his drunken denunciations. No one laughed. They stared at him with a kind of pitying wonderment. An agent de police pushed his way between the people and caught hold of the soldier by the wrist and tried to drag him away. The crowd murmured a protest, and then suddenly the Pouilloux, finding himself in the hands of the police, on this one day out of the trenches, after five months, flung himself on the pavement in a passion of tears and supplication. Je suis père de famille. Je suis un soldat de France. Dans les tranches pour cinq mois. Qu'est-ce que mes camarades vont dire? Cré nom de Dieu. Et mon capitaine? C'est important après toute ma service comme brave soldat. Mais quoi donc, mon vieux? Viens donc, saligo, growled the agent de police. The crowd was against the policemen. Their murmurs rose to violent protest on behalf of the poilu. C'est ton héros tout de même. Cinq mois dans les tranches. C'est ta Mais oui, il est seul. Mais pourquoi pas? Après cinq mois sur la fronte? Qu'est-ce que cela signifie? C'est une aucune importance. A dandy French officer of Chasseurs Alpins stepped into the center of the scene and tapped the policeman on the shoulder. Leave him alone. Don't you see he is a soldier? Sacred name of God, don't you know that a man like this has helped to save France while you pigs stand at street corners watching petticoats? He stooped to the fallen man and helped him to stand straight. Be off with you, mon brave. 
or there will be trouble for you he beckoned to two of his own chasseurs and said look after that poor comrade yonder he is en peu étoile the crowd applauded their sympathy was all for the drunken soldier of france chapter five into a small estaminet at the end of the rue des trois cailloux beyond the hotel de ville came one day during the battles of the somme two poilus grizzled heavy men deeply bronzed with white dust in their wrinkles and the earth of the battlefields ingrained in the skin of their big coarse hands they ordered two little glasses and drank them at one gulp then two more see what i have got my little cabbage said one of them stooping to the heavy pack which he had shifted from his shoulders to the other seat beside him it is something to make you laugh and what is that my old man said a woman sitting at the other side of the marble top table with another woman of her own class from the market nearby the man did not answer the question but fumbled into his pack laughing a little in a self-satisfied way i killed a german to get it he said he was a pig of an officer a dirty boche very chic too and young like a schoolboy one of the women patted him on the shoulder her eyes glistened did you slit his throat the dirty dog eh i'd like to get my fingers round the neck of a dirty bush i finished him with a grenade said the poilu it was good enough it knocked a hole in him as large as a cemetery see then my cabbage it will make you smile it is a funny kind of mascot eh he put on the table a small leather pouch stained with a blotch of reddish brown his big clumsy fingers could hardly undo the little clasp he wore this next to his heart said the man perhaps he thought it would bring him luck but i killed him all the same de Dieu. he undid the clasp and his big fingers poked inside the flap of the pouch it was from his woman his german grew perhaps even now she doesn't know he's dead she thinks of him wearing this next to his heart de Dieu. it was i that killed him a week ago he held up something in his hand and the light through the estaminet window gleamed on it it was a woman's lock of hair like fine spun gold the two women gave a shrill cry of surprise and then screamed with laughter one of them tried to grab the hair but the poilu held it high beyond her reach with a gruff command of hands off other soldiers and women in the estaminet gathered round staring at the yellow tress laughing making ribald conjectures as to the character of the woman whose head it had come from they agreed that she was fat and ugly like all german women and a foul slut she'll never kiss that fellow again said one man our old one has cut the throat of that pig of a bush i'd like to cut off all her hair and tear the clothes off her back said one of the women the dirty drab with yellow hair they ought to be killed every one of them so that the human race should be rid of them her lover is a bit of clay anyhow said the other woman a bit of dirt as our poilus will do for all of them the soldier with the woman's hair in his hand stroked it across his forefinger all the same it is pretty like gold eh i think of the woman sometimes with blue eyes like a german girl i kissed in paris a dancing girl there was a howl of laughter from the two women the old one is drunk he is amorous with the german cow 
I will keep it as a mascot, said the Poyu, scrunching it up and thrusting it into his pouch. It'll keep me in mind of that saligo of a German officer I killed. He was a chic fellow, tout de mime, a boy. Chapter 6 Australians slouched up the street of the Three Pebbles, with a grim look under their wide-brim hats, having come down from Pozieres, where it was always hell in the days of the Somme fighting. I liked the look of them, dusty up to the eyes in summer, muddy up to their eyes in winter, these gypsy fellows, scornful of discipline for discipline's sake, but desperate fighters, as simple as children in their ways of thought and speech, except for frightful oaths, and looking at life, this life of war and this life in Amiens, with frank, curious eyes, and a kind of humorous contempt for death and disease, and English Tommies and French girls, and the whole damned show, as they called it. They were lawless except for the laws to which their souls gave allegiance. They behaved as the equals of all men, giving no respect to generals or staff officers or the devils of hell. There was a primitive spirit of manhood in them, and they took what they wanted, and were ready to pay for it in coin, or in disease, or in wounds. They had no conceit in themselves, in a little, vain way, but they reckoned themselves the only fighting men, simply, and without boasting. They were hard as steel, and finely tempered. Some of them were ruffians, but most of them were, I imagine, like those English yeomen who came into France with the Black Prince, men who lived rough, close to nature, of sturdy independence, good-humoured, though fierce in a fight, and ruthless. That is how they seemed to me in a general way, though among them were boys of a more delicate fibre, and sensitive, if one might judge by their clear-cut features and wistful eyes. They had money to spend beyond the dreams of our poor Tommy. Six shillings and sixpence a day, and remittances from home. So they pushed open the doors of any restaurant in Amiens, and sat down to a table next to English officers, not abashed, and ordered anything that pleased their taste, and wine in plenty. In that high street of Amiens, one day, I saw a crowd gathered round an Australian, so tall that he towered over all other heads. It was at the corner of the Rue des Côtes de Nuit-en-Teste, the street of the naked body without a head, and I suspected trouble. As I pressed on the edge of the crowd, I heard the Australian ask, in a loud, slow drawl, whether there was any officer about who could speak French. He asked the question gravely, but without anxiety. I pushed through the crowd and said, I speak French. What's the trouble? I saw, then, that like the French poilu I have described, this tall Australian was in the grasp of a French agent de police, a small man of whom he took no more notice than if a fly had settled on his wrist. The Australian was not drunk. I could see that he had just drunk enough to make his brain very clear and solemn. He explained the matter deliberately, with a slow choice of words, as though giving evidence of high matters before a court. It appeared that he had gone into the estaminet opposite with four friends. They had ordered five glasses of Porto, for which they had paid twenty centimes each, and drank them. Then they ordered five more glasses of Porto, and paid the same price, and drank them. After this they took a stroll up and down the street, and were bored, and went into the estaminet again, and ordered five more glasses of Porto. It was then the trouble began, but it was not the Australian who began it. It was the woman behind the bar. 
she served five glasses more of porto and asked for thirty centimes each twenty centimes said the australian vente madame mais non trente centimes chaque verre thirty my old one six sous comprenez no comprenez said the australian vente centimes or go to hell the woman demanded the thirty centimes kept on demanding with a voice more shrill it was her voice that vexed me said the australian that and the bloody injustice the five australians drank the five glasses of porto and the tall australian paid the twenty centimes each without further argument life is too short for argument then without words he took each of the five glasses broke it at the stem and dropped it over the counter you will see sir he said gravely the justice of the matter on my side but when they left the estaminet the woman came shrieking into the street after them hence the agent de police and the grasp on the australian's wrist i should be glad if you would explain the case to this little frenchman said the soldier if he does not take his hand off my wrist i shall have to kill him perhaps a little explanation might serve i said i spoke to the agent de police at some length describing the incident in the cafe i took the view that the lady was wrong in increasing the price so rapidly the agent agreed gravely i then pointed out that the australian was a very large-sized man and that in spite of his quietude he was a man in the habit of killing germans he also had a curious dislike of policemen it appears to me i said politely that for the sake of your health the other end of the street is better than this the agent de police released his grip from the australian's wrist and saluted me vous avez raison monsieur je vous remercie ces australiens sont vraiment formidables n'est-ce pas he disappeared through the crowd who were smiling with a keen sense of understanding only the lady of the estaminet was unappeased they are bandits these australians she said to the world about her the tall australian shook hands with me in a cowardly way thanks for your trouble he said it was the injustice i couldn't stick i always pay the right price i come from australia i watched him go slouching down the rue des trois cailloux head above all the passers-by he would be at posier again next day chapter seven I was billeted for a time with other war correspondents in an old house in the rue amiral courbet on the way to the river somme from the street of the three pebbles and with a view of the spire of the cathedral a wonderful thing of delicate lines and tracery graven with love in every line by muret bonnet and from my dormer window it was the house of madame de la rochefoucauld who lived farther out of the town but drove in now and then to look at this little mansion of hers at the end of a courtyard behind wrought-iron gates it was built in the days before the revolution when it was dangerous to be a fine lady with the name of rochefoucauld the furniture was rather scanty and of the louis quinze and empire periods some portraits of old gentlemen and ladies of france with one young fellow in a scarlet coat who might have been in the king's company of the guard about the time when wolfe scaled the heights of abraham summoned up the ghosts of the house and i like to think of them in these rooms and going in their sedan chairs across the little courtyard to high mass at the cathedral or to some game of bezy 
in some other mansion still standing in the quiet streets of amiens unless in a day in march of nineteen eighteen they were destroyed with many other hundreds of houses by bombs and gunfire my little room was on the floor below the garret and here at night after a long day in the fields up by pozieres or montampuich or beyond by nini tilois or on the way to Beaupomme, in the long struggle and slaughter over every inch of ground i used to write my day's dispatch to be taken next day it was before we were allowed to use the military wires by king's messenger to england those articles written at high speed with an impressionism born out of many new memories of tragic and heroic scenes were interrupted sometimes by air bombardments hostile airmen came often to amiens during the somme fighting to unload their bombs as near to the station as they could guess which was not often very near generally they killed a few women and children and knocked a few poor houses and a shop or two into a wild rubbish heap of bricks and timber while i wrote listening to the crashing of glass and the anti-aircraft fire of french guns from the citadel i used to wonder subconsciously whether i should suddenly be hurled into chaos at the end of an unfinished sentence and now and again in spite of my desperate conflict with time to get my message done the censors were waiting for it downstairs i had to get up and walk into the passage to listen to the infernal noise of the dark city of amiens but i went back again and bent over my paper concentrating on the picture of war which i was trying to set down so that the world might see and understand until once again ten minutes later or so my will-power would weaken and the little devil of fear would creep up to my heart and i would go uneasily to the door again to listen then once more to my writing nothing touched the house in the rue amiral courbet while we were there but it was into my bedroom that a shell went crashing after the night in march when amiens was badly wrecked and we listened to the noise of destruction all around us from a room in the hotel de Rhine, on the other side of the way i should have been sleeping still if i had slept that night in my little old bedroom when the shell paid a visit there were no lights allowed at night in amiens and when i think of darkness i think of that city in time of war when all the streets were black tunnels and one fumbled one's way timidly if one had no flash lamp between the old houses with their pointed gables coming into sharp collision sometimes with other wayfarers but up to midnight there were little lights flashing for a second and then going out along the street of the three pebbles and in the dark corners of side streets they were carried by girls seeking to entice english officers on their way to their billets and they clustered like glow-worms about the side door of the hotel de Rhin after nine o'clock and outside the railings of the public gardens as one passed the bright bull's-eye from a pocket-torch flashed in one's eyes and in the radiance of it one saw a girl's face laughing coming very close while her fingers felt for one's badge how dark is it to-night little captain are you not afraid of darkness i am full of fear it is so sad this war so dismal it is comradeship that helps one now a little love a little laughter and then who knows a little love a little laughter alluring words to boys out of one battle expecting another hating it all lonely in their souls because of the thought of death 
in exile from their own folk in exile from all womanhood and tender feminine things up there in the ditches and shell craters of the desert fields or in the huts of headquarters staffs or in the reserve camps behind the fighting line a little love a little laughter and then who knows the sirens had whispered their own thoughts they had translated into pretty french the temptation of all the little devils in their souls un peu de mort one flash lamp was enough for two down a narrow street toward the riverside and then up a little dark stairway to a lamp-lit room presently this poor boy would be stricken with disease and wish himself dead chapter eight in the street of the three pebbles there was a small estaminet into which i went one morning for a cup of coffee while i read an amiens news sheet made up mostly of extracts translated from the leading articles of english papers there was never any news of french fighting beyond the official communique and imaginary articles of a romantic kind written by french journalists in paris about episodes of war in one corner of the estaminet was a group of bourgeois gentlemen talking business for a time and then listening to a monologue from a woman behind the counter i could not catch many words of the conversation owing to the general chatter but when the man went out the woman and i were left alone together and she came over to me and put a photograph down on the table before me and as though carrying on her previous train of thought she said in french of course yes that is what the war has done to me i could not guess her meaning looking at the photograph i saw it was a young girl in evening dress with her hair coiled in an artistic way and a little curl on each cheek madame's daughter i thought looking up at the woman standing in front of me in a grubby bodice and tousled hair she looked a woman of about forty with a wan face and beaten eyes a charming young lady i said glancing again at the portrait the woman repeated her last sentence word for word yes that is what the war has done to me i looked up at her again and saw that she had the face of a young girl in the photograph but coarsened aged rattled by the passing years and perhaps by tragedy is it you i asked yes in nineteen thirteen before the war i have changed since then n'est-ce pas monsieur there is a change i said i tried not to express my thought of how much change you have suffered in the war more than most people ah i have suffered she told me her story and word for word if i could have written it down then it would have read like a little novel by guy de montpessant she was the daughter of people in lille well-to-do merchants and before the war married a young man of the same town the son of other manufacturers they had two children and were very happy then the war came the enemy drove down through belgium and one day drew near and threatened lille the parents of the young couple said we will stay we are too old to leave our home and it is better to keep watch over the factory you must go with the little ones and there is no time to lose there was no time to lose the trains were crowded with fugitives and soldiers mostly soldiers it was necessary to walk weeping the young husband and wife said farewell to their parents and set out on the long trail with the two babies in a perambulator under a load of bread and wine and a little maid carrying some clothes in a bundle for days they tramped the roads until they were all dusty and bedraggled and footsore but glad to be getting further away from the tide of field-gray men which had now swamped over lille the young husband comforted his wife 
courage he said i have money enough to carry us through the war we will set up a little shop somewhere the maid wept bitterly now and then but the young husband said we will take care of you margot there is nothing to fear we are lucky in our escape he was a delicate fellow rejected for military service but brave they came to amiens and hired the estaminet and set up business there was a heavy debt to work off for capital and expenses before they could make money but they were doing well the mother was happy with her children and the little maid had dried her tears then one day the young husband went away with the little maid and all the money leaving his wife in the estaminet with a big debt to pay and a broken heart that is what the war has done to me she said again picking up the photograph of the girl in the evening frock with a little curl on each cheek c'est triste madame oui c'est triste monsieur but it was not war that had caused her tragedy except that it had unloosened the roots of her family life guy de montpassant would have given just such an ending to this story chapter nine some of our officers stationed in amiens and billeted in private houses became very friendly with the families who received them young girls of good middle class the daughters of shopkeepers and schoolmasters and merchants in a good way of business found it delightful to wait on handsome young englishmen to teach them french and to take walks with them and to arrange musical evenings with other girlfriends who brought their young officers and sang little old french songs with them or english songs in the prettiest french accent these young officers of ours found the home life very charming it broke the monotony of exile and made them forget the evil side of war they paid little gallantries to the girls bought them boxes of chocolate until fancy chocolate was forbidden in france and presented flowers to decorate the table and wrote amusing verses in their autograph albums or drew sketches for them as this went on they gained to the privilege of brotherhood and there were kisses before saying good-night outside bedroom doors while the parents downstairs were not too watchful knowing the ways of young people and lenient because of their happiness then a day came in each one of these households when the officer billeted there was ordered away to some other place what tears what lamentations and what promises never to forget little jeanne with her dark tresses or suzanne with the merry eyes were they not engaged not formally perhaps but in honor and in love for a time letters arrived eagerly waited for by girls with aching hearts then picture postcards with a line or two of affectionate greeting then nothing nothing at all month after month in spite of all the letters addressed with all the queer initials for military units so it happened again and again until bitterness crept into girls hearts and hardness and contempt in my own little circle of friends said a lady of amiens i know eighteen girls who were engaged to english officers and have been forsaken it is not fair it is not good your english young men seem so serious far more serious than our french boys they have a look of shyness which we find delightful they are timid at first and blush when one pays a pretty compliment they are a long time before they take liberties so we trust them and take them seriously and allow intimacies which you would refuse to french boys unless formally engaged but it is all camouflage at heart your english young men are just flirts they play with us make fools of us steal our hearts and then go away 
and often do not send so much as a postcard not even one little postcard to the girls who weep their hearts out for them you english are all hypocrites you boast that you play the game i know your phrase it is untrue you play with good girls as though they were gurus and that no frenchman would dare to do he knows the difference between good girls and bad girls and behaves with reverence to those who are good when the english army goes away from france it will leave many bitter memories because of that end of section thirteen